there is a topic that hits the media that used to really wind me up. Winds me up slightly less now, but still kind of winds me up. I wonder if anyone can guess what that topic that comes out in the media year on year on year, it's almost a tedious thing around the sort of mid to end of August that the media always bangs on about. Exams are getting easier. Absolutely. That seems to be the theme that comes out every August when, when maybe the, the, the media's got nothing better to, to write about. But exams must be getting easier. I guess behind the, the headline is the sentiment, things aren't what they used to be. Maybe you've noticed that. Maybe you've had strong feelings about that whole area of discussion. I guess for many of us, and unless we are teaching, unless we're involved in the education system with, with, with family, then perhaps that particular topic of conversation sort of fluctuates in importance. When we've got no kids in school and we're not teaching ourselves and we're not in school, it becomes less important. But if we are teachers and we get that bumped at us all the time, or if we are parents of students or grandparents of students, we kind of think, oh, come on. Things aren't what they used to be. I want to think and get you to think about the people of Israel with that in mind. Things aren't what they used to be. You see, the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament had built up a culture and an identity and a set of beliefs and a lifestyle that went along with it that was entirely based around the laws that were given to Moses by God to enable a relationship between the creator God and his people. And their whole identity was built up around those laws and that notion of being chosen. They were expecting because the prophets said as much that there would be a Messiah, a Saviour, who would come in the line of King David, one of their great leaders, one of God's people. It's kind of understandable then, if you've had generation upon generation upon generation upon generation of that, that maybe a little bit of elitism might creep into your thinking. Not least because the separation of the Jews from the Gentiles, the rest of us, was made very, very clear. What a Jew was allowed to do in relation to a non-Jew was very strictly set out. They were made unclean by contact with a non-Jew. And it was in that context that Jesus came. A Jewish man born into a Jewish family. He came in fulfilment of all that had been prophesied in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And you see in the Gospel accounts, in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, 
as Jesus came and fulfilled the prophecies that were made about him, that there were many, many Jewish people, and particularly Jewish people in authority, who were deeply sceptical, deeply suspicious of his claims. To the point that a good number of them conspired in his arrest and his crucifixion. Things aren't what they used to be. You might have heard people say in Jesus' day, who is this man? Who does he think he is? However, those that Jesus reached and touched, those who acknowledged him as Lord, who witnessed his power, experienced freedom from all manner of captivity, from sickness, from evil, from sin. Well, those people at least came to see that he was the one who was announced and expected. But what I want us to, to see this morning is that it was a really, really big deal for a Jew to acknowledge Jesus as Saviour. It was going against the, 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 the current, swimming upstream, against those in authority who wanted to maintain things as they had always been, as they had been set down by Moses. People that actually were trying to honour what Moses had been given. There was a heritage and a culture of a people chosen by God. And here was a change that affected the whole of society. Not just kind of the, the, the little bit of society that's interested in education, as I kind of started as thinking about. But the whole of society was feeling this kind of, things aren't quite what they used to be. We've been studying the book of Acts for some while and we saw right in chapter 1 that Jesus said, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to go from Jerusalem, the city where, where, where Christianity started, into Judea, the surrounding neighbourhoods, and Samaria, which was outside of the Jewish nation, and to the ends of the earth. And by the time we've got to Acts chapter 15, the gospel has spread beyond Judea, beyond Samaria, and has begun to make its way to the ends of the earth. And in that process, Gentiles, non-Jews, were being included in this movement of people that started with the Jews but, but went beyond. It's small wonder that, that poor Peter, Simon Peter in Acts chapter 10, couldn't quite believe his eyes as, as he saw this vision of being told to, to eat stuff that as a Jew he was 
absolutely certain he was not supposed to go near. Get up, Peter, and eat, the vision told him. And so Peter, a good Jewish man, went to Cornelius and his family, Gentiles. I think it's kind of hard for us to imagine that kind of separation culturally. Maybe those of you that watch Downton Abbey, how many people watch Downton Abbey? You don't have to stick your hands up. But if you watch Downton Abbey, sorry if you don't, but you might get the idea in just a tick. In Downton Abbey, you get a sense of a huge division between the upper classes who lived upstairs and the servant classes who lived downstairs. And to move between those two groups of people was an incredible, difficult step to take, really frowned upon, as we've seen with poor old Tom, who's gone from chauffeur downstairs to part of the family upstairs. But he's still wrestling with that. That kind of division just a hundred years ago, was massive in our country. Less than a hundred years ago, probably in the 60s, the idea of a mixed-race marriage would have thrown people into all sorts of conniptions. Closer still, even today in Ireland, there would still be widespread tension if a Protestant boy started going out with a Catholic girl. There are divisions that even today seem insurmountable. And that's the kind of division that was being crossed here 2,000 years ago. For Saul, who was a fiercely zealous man of authority in the Jewish uh, hierarchy, He wanted to see the Christians dead. And then he encounters Jesus and recognises, I've got this wrong. Jesus is who he said he is. And he becomes a man, Paul, who finds himself on a mission to share Jesus with the Gentiles. And the authorities in Jerusalem struggle with that. The early people were saying, yeah, do you know that, 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 that Christian beater, he started to become a Christian maker. And there was all sorts of conversation going on in the early church. But they, they kind of got their heads around it. And here in the middle of Acts, it's still rumbling on. Verse 1 some self-appointed Jews, as it turns out, have come down from Jerusalem, the centre of the early church, to Antioch, and are saying, in order to be saved, in order to be able to stand before God and not be condemned, as a Gentile, you need to be circumcised. You've got to become a Jew in order to be saved. 
And needless to say, that ruffled a few feathers. It caused a lot of people to kind of go, hang on a minute, that that doesn't seem right. And, And so you get all of this stuff that was going on in the first few verses of chapter 15 where there's a sharp dispute between Paul and Barnabas and these people that have come down and seem to be stirring up a whole lot of trouble. It's an issue that needed to be addressed because it had the potential to blow apart God's intention for his church, that it would be a church that would reach Jew and Gentile alike. And some of the Jewish Christians had kind of missed the point. They were so embedded in their cultural understanding that they thought, well, if they're going to become Christians, they've got to become Jews as well. And they've got to show that by being circumcised. They've missed what the main thing is. And so it is that Peter finishes in verse 11 with that verse that we dwelt on before we sang Amazing Grace. It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Grace is the sheer undeserved generosity of God. It is through the sheer undeserved generosity of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Paul goes on to write to the Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God died for the ungodly. For us. For you. For me. For Jew. For Gentile. His gift, not our efforts. His generosity, not our efforts. It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. That's the bottom line of the good news of Jesus. We are brought into relationship with the living creator God because of his sheer undeserved generosity towards us. And this meeting in Jerusalem is pivotal. I guess that's why it's right in the middle of the Acts of the Apostles. It's pivotal to the future of the church, seems to me. We hear from Peter in verses 7 to 11, who begins to explain God's heart. Then we see that Paul and Barnabas give testimony about all they've been doing with with the people who were not Jews. And then James, Jesus' half-brother, the leader of the Jerusalem church, picks up and he summarises what's going on here. And verse 19, he says this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. 
Oh man, I hear you say. Because that's us. <laughs> but then verse 20. Having established the main thing, that, that grace is what saves us, that, that God's gift is what saves us. Nothing we can do physically, nothing we can do can earn God's approval. That's the main thing. It seems a bit odd that verse 20 comes along. And it almost seems to contradict the decision that the Gentiles don't need to follow Jewish custom. But just stop and think what's at stake here. As James says, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. I've tried to illustrate to you that this is a massive, massive seismic shift for the Jews to get their head around. There would have been a huge sense amongst the Jews of things aren't what they used to be. Is it all going to pot? Surely we're letting our standards down if we let the Gentiles in, just like that. Surely that's not right. James and the gathered assembly are affirming that, that circumcision is not necessary for salvation. Absolutely not necessary. You don't need to become a Jew to be saved. But they're also seeing that there's a practical response needed to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus. And that maybe there needs to be some bridge built in the chasm between Jew and Gentile. And, and, and having a clear Practical demonstration that followers of Jesus do indeed need to change the way they behave. It's not just about rocking up on a Sunday and then doing whatever you like through the week. The pagan practices that were around in those days, around idol worship, around food that was sacrificed and then consumed by those that, that, that maybe had offered the sacrifices and then sold, some of it sold in the marketplace. There was a sense of, of there being a, a kind of a, a pollution that was just unhealthy. And in amongst all that pagan practice, sexual immorality was rife. Temple prostitution was part of the fabric of many pagan worship practices. And so it kind of makes sense that James is saying, look, you need to make sure that you do not identify with any kind of pagan practice. But he's also saying in, in that bit about not eating meat that's been strangled or, or, or eating blood, those things were very precious 
to the Jewish believers. Those food laws. It, it talked about the blood of an animal being, being the lifeblood, like blood that's shed, that, that Jesus shed his blood. And so that whole thing was tied up and associated for a Jew in the food that they ate. And James was saying, come on, build some bridges, let's be sensitive in some of these things. They're, they're not about salvation, but they are about building relationships, allowing a Jew maybe to eat with a Gentile. That was unheard of. But here, maybe there was just a possibility of that. So it might seem like there's a paradox here, a contradiction that with one hand, James is saying, yeah, you don't have to be circumcised. But with the other hand, he's saying, well, yeah, but could you obey this, this and this, please? But actually, when we stop to think about it, so much of life kind of has paradox there. With freedom in so many areas of our life comes responsibility. Take driving, for example. We are free to drive a car on the roads, provided you've got a license and insurance and it's all up to spec. You're free to drive a car. But the highway code is there to help us drive responsibly. We need to obey the highway code so that we don't run people over, so that we don't cause accidents with freedom comes responsibility if we break the law we find that we get a fine points on our license joyful little excursions to to drive a training ex, ex, um, things that, that uh, some of us might have been to perhaps Same in our Christian life, if you think about it. Our victory over sin and death in Jesus comes when we surrender. How does victory come when we surrender? Our freedom in Christ comes when we submit to what he says. Our power in Christ comes when we acknowledge our helplessness. There are paradoxes all the way along. So as the Jerusalem Council urges requirements on the early church, where there would be many that would still have Jewish communities. In, in all these places, Antioch and Cilicia and Syria, all these places, there were, there were places that had Jewish communities. We see James trying to say, you are part of a bigger community. 
See, today we, more than ever, live in a very, very individualistic culture. We can so easily come to think that faith is a, a personal thing. That actually we can just work it out in isolation and, and it's all according to my preferences, how I want to worship and how I want to do things. But that's not, that's not the gospel. We can't be slavish to this, but we do need to work out how we express our commitment to Jesus through our commitment to one another. I wonder, is meeting together a priority to worship? Are serving and giving sacrificially to advance the gospel, are those things that are right up there in our priority lists? Or are they just kind of whatever I've got left over I'll maybe chuck in to the pile? Do I have a sense of community that I'm a part of here at Five Head that is part of a wider community that is looking to serve God? Of course our salvation is by grace alone. That is the truth. And none of those things that I've just talked about being church and community are about salvation. But rather they're a part of what Paul talks about in Philippians where he urges the Philippian church to work out their salvation. What you've been given has consequences for your life. When your heart beats here, it has a an effect on your fingers and your toes and your legs and your head doesn't stay there. But actually God's working in you goes throughout you and your whole life. Sometimes to work out our salvation will seem like a pleasure and a joy. Sometimes, as we saw last week, it will be hard and difficult but we do need to work out how we live in community, how we know that we've been saved by grace, but we've been saved into a body of people who all want to honour God. We're about to gather around communion. Simple meal that reminds us of the gift given to us of forgiveness for our sins, the offer of relationship with God both now and in eternity. I'd invite you to reflect. How am I responding to that gift given today? Maybe I I don't fully understand what that gift is and I need to explore it a bit further. Maybe I have been keeping my faith as my little thing and not really allowing myself to be used. 
Maybe I need to be thinking about how at work or at home God wants to use me and help me. As you come to communion today, let's remember his gift, his generosity, his initiative for us to respond in changed lives.